You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. I want to thank you all for joining us today for this very unique event. I am Keith Mines, Director for Latin America at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and I'll moderate our session today. Uh, so USIP, for those of you not familiar with the Institute, was established by Congress in 1984 as a nonpartisan public institution dedicated to preventing, mitigating, and helping nations re uh, recover from violent conflict. Our Latin America program covers eight countries in the hemisphere, in the Andes, Central America, and Haiti, with a regional office in Bogota. So for the past eight weeks, USIP has hosted a remarkable exhibit of the photography of war and peace in conjunction with the Seven Foundation. The Seven Foundation is a nonprofit media education organization established in 2001 by Gary Knight and Ron Haviv to help transform visual journalism by empowering new voices and creating stories that advocate for change. The exhibit challenges us with the question, why is it so difficult to make a good peace when it is so easy to imagine? It takes us through war and into peace through the lens of photojournalists covering eight conflicts with a postscript covering two more. The late Secretary of State Madeleine Albright described the exhibit this way. The searing images and moving essays teach us much about the lessons of history, the costs of war, and the overlooked challenges of achieving lasting peace. It reminds us the gaps that exist between peoples can be bridged, wounds can be healed, hatreds can be dissolved, and the once unthinkable can become reality, if there is a willingness to pursue dialogue and embrace our common humanity. So we've asked two photojournalists and one print journalist today to join us to discuss these questions in the context of the conflicts in Central America although they will reflect on their work more broadly. Uh, this is the final event of the Imagine exhibit, whose last day is uh, Monday, August 1st. So if you haven't been yet, it's still time to get over here. Uh, it's been a, an honor for the Institute to be the part of the first run of the U in the US of this remarkable exhibit. And we appreciate the trust of the Seven Foundation in choosing USIP. So Bill Gentile is an independent Emmy award-winning a uh, journalist and documentary filmmaker whose coverage of conflicts in the hemisphere includes the 1979 Sandinista Revolution, the Salvadoran Civil War, the U.S. interventions in Panama and Haiti. He's also covered the first Gulf War and the post-9-11 wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, as well as various conflicts in Africa. His recent documentary work includes Freelancers with Bill Gentile, Mexico, a feature-length film documentary about the new breed of foreign correspondents filling the void left by mainstream media's retreat from foreign news. His latest book is Wait For Me, True Stories of War, Love, and Rock and Roll, published last year. Robert Nicholsberg worked as a Time Magazine contract photographer for nearly 30 years, specializing in political and cultural change in developing countries. He's the author of Afghanistan, A Distant War, published in 2013, which represents his 25 years of work in Afghanistan. The book received the 2013 Oliver Olivier Raybot Award from the Overseas Press Club for the best photographic reporting from abroad in magazines or books. Uh, his new book, Afghanistan's Heritage, Restoring Spirit in Stone, in conjunction with the State Department, was published in English, Dari, and Pashto in May 
2018. He was a 2019 Logan Nonfiction Fellow, during which he brought together his 1982 to 84 photographic coverage of the Guatemalan Civil War, combining the archival documentation of genocide of the Ixil Maya by the Guatemalan military. Nicholsburg is a graduate of the University of Vermont and lives with his wife in Brooklyn. Jose Luis Sanz is the Washington correspondent of El Faro and editor of El Faro English. He was the director of El Faro for seven years and a founding member of Sala Negra, an investigative journalism team specializing in violence, gangs, and organized crime in Central America. He's been awarded the LASA Media Award and was part of the teams who received the Gabriel Garcia Marquez Prize and the Latin American Investigative Journalism Award and the Hillman Prize. So I perused the work of each of uh, our photojournalists over the past week, and it is truly mesmerizing. There are common themes, uh, young men between battles looking confident, ready to prove themselves, young men in battle looking confused and terrified, wounded men after battle looking dejected and in pain, and always civilians caught in the crossfire, images of pure desperation. Uh, they're at the same time riveting and challenging. They challenge our image of conflict and force us to confront the results of policy choices, reminding us that even good policy choices come with a high human cost. So I want to give Bob and Bill a few minutes each to present several of your photographs and share with us the story behind them. Uh, how did you experience these conflicts uh, through the, the craft of photographing them? What impact do you hope they had on the viewer both then and now? So if we could start with Bill and then Bob. Hi, everybody, and uh, thank you for, for joining us, uh, both uh, you here personally and, and uh, those of you or who joined us uh, online. Um, some pictures. As you just saw, I, I work at American University now, and um, I, I make television documentaries uh, as opposed to making still pictures. This picture here um, I made in 1979. Um, I'm one of the few American journalists who covered both the Sandinista Revolution in 1979 as well as the Contra War throughout the, uh, the 1980s. Um, at this time, I was working for United Press International. Um, and, and in many ways, my story is as much about technology and what technology has allowed us to achieve in the field as it is about covering different stories. Um, you, as you can see here, this is a black and white picture. At that time, we had to carry around the people who worked for United Press International. We carried around entire dark rooms that we had to rebuild in, in hotel bathrooms um, and transmitted our pictures over landlines to New York City, which is where UPI was based. Um, today, uh, I make pictures, I make documentaries uh, with, with, with this, with, with, with an iPhone, um, uh, you know, something that we never even dreamed about uh, at, at that time. Um, but this was my, my, my uh, um, birth under fire, I guess you could call it. Um, uh, I had never seen war before. I had never seen men and women fight uh, uh, you know, up close uh, and very dangerously to achieve political ends. Uh, so this was my baptism under fire, I should call it. Um, not long after this, we saw a reaction to this action. And, and it's, uh, it dealt with these folks here. These are Contras. They were supported by the United States, as was the previous regime in, in Nicaragua, <clears throat> the Somoza regime supported by the United States. These Contras, um, many of them were former National Guardsmen under the orders of the Somoza dictatorship. And um, they regrouped and, and started a Contra war against the Sandinista regime to, to oust the Sandinistas. Um, these here, this is the aftermath of, a, of an ambush 
Uh, these are Sandinista troops, members of the Sandinista People's Army. I spent an, an extraordinary amount of time uh, with the, the Sandinistas because I was based in Nicaragua from 1983 until 1990. So, uh, and, and, and by, by this time, I was working for Newsweek magazine. I was Newsweek magazine's contract photographer for Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, these folks were just attacked uh, in an ambush by the Contra forces that regrouped after the, uh, the 1979 revolution. Um, a couple of these young men were, were hurt. Nobody, thank goodness, uh, died as a result of this, uh, this ambush. Um, and, but, but this was the way that the, the war in, in Nicaragua uh, uh, took place. It was very, you saw very, very few um, uh, frontal confrontations between the, the Contras and the Sandinistas. Uh, the war played out very, very much like the war in Vietnam played out. Uh, you know, long periods of walking through the, the mountains, tropical highlands of, of uh, Nicaragua, uh, you know, interrupted by um, ambushes and, and chance encounters in the mountains, explosions of, of, of fire and, and uh, uh, machine guns and, and mortars and so forth. And then, you know, the, the, uh, the result carrying uh, wounded and dead out of, out of, the, um, out of the mountains. Um, this was a picture that, that I've included. You know, I have two books. I did a, a book on Nicaragua, a book of photographs that came out in the late 1980s. And I just published this book, um, and Keith mentioned this, uh, Wait for Me, True Stories of War, Love, and Rock and Roll. And uh, the picture that we're seeing here on this screen is, is, is included in that book. And it, and it says an awful lot about, about me, about my career, about what I was trying to do in Nicaragua. Um, this, I made this picture shortly after the ambush that you, you just saw, the picture of the ambush that you just saw. Um, th this group of people asked me and, and, and a colleague of mine to make pictures of a militiaman, this dead militiaman, who is surrounded by some of his colleagues and his family. The, the woman behind him is his wife. Those are his two children. Uh, the woman in red is his, is his, his mother. And the, uh, the man on the left with the AK-47 is uh, his father. Um, and these people had invited us to, to, to make pictures of the, uh, of, of the dead because they understood the power that we, the foreign media, had. Uh, in countries like Nicaragua, the voices of people like this, workers, poor peasants, the disenfranchised, they were very, very rarely heard inside the country. And, and the voices, their voices were, were even more rarely heard uh, outside of the country. Uh, but when, when, when we, the international press, came to these countries and documented what was happening to them, they understood somehow that, that we were there uh, as, as objective observers, dedicated journalists, sometimes risking death and, and, and permanent disfigurement. Um, we were there to tell the truth and get their stories out to, to outside uh, players in the hopes that their, their lives could be made for the better. I'm going to read really quickly. It's going to take me a, re a minute to read this um, about what, what, this, what this picture shows and, and why it's so important for me now. Um, okay. I can do, I can do, I can do with this besides, there's a little I can do with this besides a straightforward portrait of the whole scene. Um, as I'm looking through the camera, composing the shots, and these people are posing there for us, making their statement, I see that the wife of the dead militiaman is staring straight at me. She's the only person in the group who makes eye contact with me, and it's more than just a stare. It's a piercing connection that cuts past everything else in the picture. 
I look at the picture today in my book and her stare completely dominates the page. And I can hear what she's saying to me then and now, this woman whose husband very much and very much a part of her entire life is lying dead in a wooden box in front of hers. She's talking to me. This person who has had her existence and that of her children devastated in a single day. And maybe I'm so shaken then and now because I seem to have been in this room before, heard the words before, felt the sadness before that presses against me again like this, the heat under this black plastic roof. This is what she said, open quote, look what they've done to my life. Show the world what happened here, close quote. And a paragraph later, as I'm driving out of the place, uh, uh, in re returning to Managua, I write again, I still hear her talking to me and I answer her. This is what I said. Yes, I say to her, I promise I will show them. And in a nutshell, <clears throat> that's pretty much what we did in, 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 in Nicaragua. You know, we had a press corps in Nicaragua that was dedicated to telling the stories of disenfranchised uh, in, in the hopes that their lives would become better by foreign intervention, by, by players outside of their country doing something positive. Um, I had a, a, an extraordinary connection in, in Nicaragua. Um, um, my first wife uh, named Claudia, um, I married Claudia, this is her, her youngest brother Danilo, I met Claudia uh, during the revolution in 1979, and, and we got together uh, after the revolution and so forth, got married and so forth. And uh, through her family, which her family was really, really well connected with the Sandinista government, um, I saw the revolution from inside. A fellow by the name of Alan Riding, who, who at the time was, uh, he was, it was New York Times bureau chief in Mexico and Central America, wrote that a lot of journalists covered the story of Nicaragua, but he wrote in, 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 in a critique of, of in a review of this book, he wrote that, that I, Bill Gentile, had, had lived the story. And I lived the story through my Nicaraguan family. This is Danilo. He's, I guess he's 17, 18 years old here. He joined the Sandinista People's Army. He was badly wounded in an attack by the Contras. And this is Danilo in a picture that was made um, probably less than a year ago. Um, he's blind. He, 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 was, he, was, he took a, a, a mortar around in, in, in his head. Uh, it, it, uh, the mortar uh, shrapnel uh, uh, affected his brain. Uh, he's blind. He can't walk by himself. He can't feed himself. He can't have a conversation. Um, he is a living testament to the human cost of war. And that's what the best of us try to convey in Nicaragua, the human cost of war. Um, that's it. Thank you very much for your attention, and, and I'm, I'm happy to take questions uh, later on in the program. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you, Keith and Mary, for putting this program together. So to begin, my pictures uh, from El Salvador, three will show, and two, and three, sorry, three from Guatemala. I covered Central America for Time magazine from 1981 to 1984 as a contract photographer. And while I had most of Central America to cover, I was based in San Salvador, covered Guatemala, Honduras, occasionally Nicaragua, and down to Costa Rica, once in a while down to Panama. But essentially, El Salvador uh, dominated the news and had the most uh, coverage uh, in that period of time. It was often front page and had a full-time 
uh, bevy of correspondents, cameramen, TV stations, radio uh, journalists, and uh, all the wire services. So in, in context, 1981, the Miami Herald was still very prominent. Uh, it was down in Central America every day with, with a story in the paper. The New York Times had, had a stringer, full-time reporter in uh, El Salvador, and we generated a lot of coverage. So as a first-time uh, photographer in that region, I had to keep up with the reporters who had many years advanced uh, coverage in the area, and I, my roommate was the time correspondent. So I had full access to information and spent a lot of time reading and trying to keep up with reporters who essentially were ahead of me. But uh, for a weekly magazine in the middle of the Cold War, it was important that we knew in advance what the events would be coming off of us in Washington, D.C. Every six months, military aid was um, put in front of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for approval. So every six months, we were guaranteed uh, a page or two, possibly just a note in Time magazine. And remember, film was sent up north unprocessed. I never saw the film. It went to Miami. And then by that late afternoon, it got to Time Magazine in New York. The deadline was Friday night. The magazine came out on a Monday. So we had no fast turnover of material. And whatever picture I took on a Tuesday, in the best of all worlds, had to be relevant again by the following Monday. And we had to be able to sort of read tea leaves, have our own crystal ball, and be able to project what the news would be the following week in relation to the picture and news report that was delivered. Also of note is that the reporting included uh, Time Magazine people in Washington, and particularly coverage of the State Department. So they were competing files from the reporters, and this being a word-driven publication, uh, I was lucky to get one picture into the magazine, and often maybe a thumbnail plus a picture on the table of contents, very often a lot of work and not much in, in the way of uh, real estate in the magazine. Uh, this particular picture, you can see the uh, main officers of the Salvadoran army. This person here, Colonel uh, Nicolas Carranza, it turns out was uh, a paid CIA agent for many years and, and took residence in, in the United States. Uh, Lopez Nuila was head of the police department, and between his uh, heading up of the treasury police and the local police responsible for all the brutality and the violence, the death squads, and a lot of the mayhem, which the United States knew about, but was not uh, very happy in trying to control and very unsuccessful in controlling it. Carranza ended up, I think, in Tennessee. He became a janitor. It's rather strange. Uh, often, while working five, six, seven days a week, if we took a day off, we would go down to La Libertad, which is a, a beach resort on the Pacific, and to try to take some time off. But always, we would go to the city morgue just in case there happened to be something there. Uh, 
And here you have some unidentified men trying to identify most likely family members that had been dumped on the side of the road by a death squad. And if you look closely, it's a little tough to see. I believe this man has just recognized this is either his father or his brother. It's, the longer you study this, their facial features are the same, but he's been beaten up pretty badly and both were shot in the head. This was a common occurrence for us to chase bodies and to try to counter whatever was coming out of Washington as foreign policy that they really didn't have any basis in reality with policy and with the reality on the ground. These are uh, rebels in Usulutan province taken in 1983, coming through town looking for information. This woman here obviously knows this fellow, but you can see the variety of costumes, dress, notebook here, sport jacket here, cowboy hat, poverty, big family, in a, an area of El Salvador, very often under contention in Usulutan. This is the sugarcane uh, flat area in the uh, southeastern part of the country. The ERP, which is this group, had a lot of control in that area. Very often during the day, it was difficult to find the, the guerrillas, but on occasion, if you stuck around long enough, you could find them, interview them, and photograph them. Here you have the Che Guevara look, the faraway look, the cowboy look. It's really very interesting costumes. I must tell you that this film sat in a box for 25 years unedited because I shot color for time and two cameras of color and one of black and white. Time never looked at the black and white. They processed it. So recently I've gone through it and scanned it all in. So we're going to switch to Guatemala here. This is in Todos Santos, up in the mountains, in the Huehuetenango province uh, department. And they have just been told that they will become part of the civil militia by the military, that they must patrol the streets and the, the back roads. They're not happy about this, but they were threatened by the military. You can see here people objecting to a colonel telling them what they had to do under threat. And this was devised as a way to come between the guerrillas in this civil war and the army to try to take away the pool of recruits, put guns in their hand, and basically be cannon fodder. Now, I've never seen this kind of pushback, and you can see their determined look with this fellow who could easily come back and, and kill them. There was an amazing amount of killing going on. This is 1982. I drove a lot of the back roads myself. I still can't believe I'm here today, given the severity of that civil war back then and the violence. 45,000 people were disappeared, 200,000 people were killed in, in the 36 uh, year civil war. They did not mess around in Guatemala. It was the most sinister place I've ever worked. 
mysterious, spooky, scary. And I must say, uh, people at the U.S. Embassy were not very helpful for us. They didn't really want us there, as opposed to El Salvador, which had a much different uh, interplay with journalists. And in fact, one of the public affairs people at the U.S. Embassy in Guatemala said, why are you here? Why is Time Magazine here to interview the, the U.S. Ambassador? There's nothing going on in Guatemala. Go back to El Salvador. And one of the worst things you can say to a journalist or photographer is that there's nothing going on here. I still can't believe he said that. There's a lot going on in this image. Now this is a quite a unique picture. Very often I had to take the prism off of my camera. They were not autofocus and guess the distance. And this is in January of 1982, one of the worst years. I mean, there weren't very many good years while I was there. But this is on the military base in Santa Cruz del Quiche. This is a man you can see. He's been taken off a Jeep by the intelligence members of the army and being taken into this uh, path here for interrogation. And there's probably a 99% chance that he did not come out. You can see the way he's walking. He's being pushed, uncoordinated, and most likely was on a list to be picked up. They never heard me take the picture. Remember, cameras back then were not electronic. They made a lot of noise. I often had to cough when I took the picture, but I just kept a steady distance between myself and this, what was going on, and then got out of there. But if you were uh, willing to take the chance and push it, they often left us alone. But again, Guatemala was a difficult place to work. And something a lot of people didn't know, that the Taiwanese government was there for psyops. The Israeli army was there for communications. The South African army was there to advise them on divide and rule. The Argentines and the Chileans were there for counter-guerrilla and interrogation methods. They were all there. And we never saw them in, in El Salvador, but you knew they were there in Guatemala. And for this public affairs fellow to tell us that nothing was going on in Guatemala, go back to El Salvador, I, I find quite um, amazing still to this day. So with that in mind, um, Jose Luis, I think is. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'll just wait here. You do that, but thank you very okay. much. Thank you. Thanks. Great. Well, let me bring, <clears throat> if I could, that was very sobering, uh, very powerful. I wanted to bring Jose Luis into the conversation now <clears throat> as someone uh, from El Salvador and, and that has experienced uh, this in a very different way. But as, as you experienced the post war in El Salvador, and did extensive work in Guatemala and the rest of Central America over the past 20 years. I wanted to ask what part did photojournalism play in shaping attitudes inside these countries about the wars and how, if, any, if at all, did images shape perspectives and understanding of this crucial piece of history now? And then I wanted to really focus on the understanding of the war and its place in, in, in Salvadoran history in society and especially among youth. I was surprised when I was there recently that 30 years on, granted 30 years is not yesterday, but it's you know not 100 years, 
the kind of lack of understanding of many Salvadorans, and particularly the rising generation of what the war, what it was, what it was about, and, and kind of not having a, a place for it in, in their own understanding and narrative of the country. Well, first of all, thank you for the invitation. It's an honor to be with you here, finally met, met you. Um, well, a lot of ideas come to my mind. One, one of them, first of all, the reporters, the, the foreign correspondents the, uh, that work in El Salvador, Guatemala, especially I will talk about El Salvador, they kind of set a standard for the Salvadoran journalism, not only during the war, but in the post-war. That's, that's really important, and, and we all know that in El Salvador. Uh, generations of journalists learn from, from, from the international uh, media, and, and I, I can think speci specifically in, in several photographers uh, that are uh, well respected in El Salvador. I, I, I'm talking about local reporters, lo lo local photographers like Francisco Campos, uh, Luis La Muñeca Romero, Luis mm -hmm. uh, um, Galdamez, uh, many of them. That, that they, they work with you, they learn from you guys, and, and, and they set a standard. But also, uh, I, I, I just learned that during the 80s, the number of people, of young people, uh, inscribing themselves in the university, in the national university, and public one, to study journalists, uh, was three times the usual. Because they wanted to tell the story, to, to, tell, to explain what was happening in, in El Salvador. And that's in part because George Open, because the the local journalist at that time was mostly desk work without a lot of on-the-ground reporting. And, and also most of the media, they were in some way partisan, were not totally partisan. Uh, so so th that's one thing that, that we need to, to, to keep in mind. It's not only that you told to the world what was happening in El Salvador, Guatemala, you educated the gays for the post-war journalism. The way we understood, the, understand still now, uh, in some way, the, the the job, and 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 some some correspondents or, or, or special envoys were also stayed in, in, in the country and, and became teachers in, in universities for for a while. So, I think that that's really really important. And and then is the the fact that you documented the war, and and that's interesting because. Uh, I mean, it's a part, there's a paradox here because most of the people in El Salvador never had access to this, to these photographies, to the footage, to, to the stories written by foreign journalists. Even now, they don't have access mm. to many of these uh, stories or photographies or, or, or for, to, the, to documentaries. Uh, um, but at, at the same time, this is the record of what happened. And, and uh, has in part, I, I can remember the, the genocide trial in, in, in Guatemala. Journalists were um, uh, invited to be part of, to testify in, 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 the, in the trial. In Spain, in, in the Jesuits case trial, and, and now in the investiga investigation in, uh, of the Romero's uh, murder, Romero murder in, in El Salvador, the work of, the, of, of international and local journalists has been part of this, and, and, and it's still really important, because we will talk later about the, the memory and the political factor in this, but the thing is that in El Salvador we don't have 
and I am going to, to, to your question about the young people. We don't have a fair film industry. Uh, we don't have um, uh, the, the, the TV stations never broadcast uh, casted these images or, or, or <coughs> the, the footage of the war. I, I directed a documentary in 2009 about the presidential election that uh, brought uh, the FMLN to the power. And the first 10 minutes were footage from the war. And I, after the screening, I, I talked with, with, the, with the audience, and most of them were shocked with that images because they had never seen that. Even if this is, uh, the, the, those images are part of archives in El Salvador, they don't have access. Uh, so, and, and, and as I said, we don't have film industry. The, the first post-war film uh, about the war focused mainly in in the victims or in the civil uh, in, the, in the civilians was *Voces Inocentes*. This is a, a Mexican film from Luis Mandoki, a Mexican uh, uh, filmmaker, and I, I I saw how this was cathartic for the, for the people in El Salvador to see themselves, their reality, the impact of the war uh, in, in the screen. Uh, in this context, uh, well, also the war is not part of the curriculum in the, in the, in the schools or in, in most of the uh, universities. So people know what happened in the war because of their families' uh, stories, because of journalism and because of the political leaders' narrative. And that's, I think, part of the, of the problem. So no, most of the young people doesn't understand, doesn't know what happened in the world in El Salvador. Thanks, that's tremendous. Um, Bill and Bob, I wanted to put one question to both of you, if I could. <clears throat> Several weeks ago here, uh, we, we hosted the rollout of the Colombian Truth Commission. Uh, three years, the commission interviewed 30,000 victims uh, across the country that, that basically bore witness to the <clears throat> violence that was unleashed on the Colombian people over the preceding decades. But it occurred to me that they, the, the visual images were very limited, that there wasn't a conflict. Certainly, the scale of the conflict was certainly not well documented. And in your cases as well, I'm sure that uh, you were only capturing a fraction of what was actually going on. As I look at your work, it doesn't look, it doesn't look to me like people that came into it with a, an agenda. But I, I want to make sure people understand my way of seeing things. It was, it was more balanced than that, if you will, even though it does tell a story that certainly has a certain narrative. But I just wondered if you could talk just for a second about how you see your role as a witness to conflict and then to history. Um, maybe we start with Bob and then Bill. Well. <clears throat> Having made the decision to live there, um, I heard everything, I smelled everything, I watched everything. I became a very well-versed observer and had also had a very pragmatic approach to this. Um, I made a lot of local contacts, let the local people lead me into a situation. Uh, take cues from them, and as journalism at its best is a collaboration, um, I became a good good observer of, of what was going on. And 
even develop good relationships with people in the embassy, for instance, in order to get better information to take a more informed photograph. And that remained true whether I was in Honduras and with exceptions, Guatemala, um, but certainly helped me witness things with proximity. And you have the protagonists, <coughs> the military, the guerrillas, and the civilian population in the middle. You needed good relations with all three. I did not have an agenda, but I certainly wanted to tell the story that would capture the interest of people in the US. And given that this was a word-driven magazine that I was working for, the argument had to be also a visual argument. And content was very important in the picture. I made sure I had things accurately stated in my captions. I didn't want a 2 a.m. call saying, you know, who's the person on the left and find out that they were using a picture of the Honduran military. And it came close on a few occasions if someone was away on vacation, an editor, for instance. So you had to be able to translate what you were seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting to people in a faraway place that were not normally in a position of a conflict zone. And that improved my capability as a witness. Thanks. Thanks, Bill. You know, it, it, I lived in Nicaragua for seven years, and, and I worked really hard there. Um, but I never had a job. Um, I always saw my role, and I think I, I, I share this perspective with a lot of our, my colleagues. Um, I never had a job. I had a mission. And, and, and my mission was to tell the story of these poor people in this poor country um, that was ruled by a, a, a brutal dictatorship uh, and, 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 and was trying to find its way forward as a country and as, and as a people. Um, I, you know, previous to, to going over completely to the visual side of journalism, I was, a, I was a foreign correspondent, a print correspondent for United Press International. And I think that gave me you know, a, a, a standard of fairness and balance that I needed to, to, that I needed to have as I, as I moved from, uh, from print journalism to, to video journalism to, to photo journalism. Um, and, and I understood that um, both, when you're covering war, Everything is magnified. Every little detail is magnified a thousand times because so much is at stake. So much is on the line there. And I knew that I had to be portrayed, and I knew that people had to read what I wrote or, or witness the, the, the images that I made and come away thinking that, okay, this guy is a fair-minded observer, and he's trying to communicate what's really happening there in reality. Because if, you, if you're perceived as being with one side or another, not only do you do an injustice to the story and the people who you're photographing, who you're covering, you do an injustice to, to the craft itself. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do that. So I think my training as a print journalist with United Press International and my, my, my desire to be fair with, with the people who I was covering really made an impact on, on the way my coverage is perceived. Thanks. Thanks. Jose Luis, the, uh, the Colombian Truth Commission also decried the current state of a society 
as they put it, that's trapped in a war mode in which citizens cannot envision others who think differently than they do. Um, some conflicts, uh, as we show in our exhibit, push societies to a place of reconciliation and lasting peace, albeit often a begrudging, begrudging peace. Uh, but some of the conflicts in Central America seem to have left lasting cleavages that have been difficult to close. I wonder if you could comment on what it is about these conflicts that in some cases have, have driven polarization and left societies uh, divided. Well, seeing the Bob photos, some of them focus on those who make decisions in front of those who put their lives or, or the bodies in, in, on the ground. And, and I think what happened in, again in El Salvador, and I, I think it reflects in Guatemala and probably Nicaragua, um, the, the, usually we blame the, the ideological polarization, but I don't think that's the problem, the real problem. The, the, the problem, I think, is, is the lack of stature of, of the political leaders, especially in the post-war. The case of El Salvador, I think, is, is, is again, is, is really clear, is very clear. Uh, people, in, the real people, the Salvadorians, they, they made peace, made peace with the past, they, they, with, uh, with each other, they, they embraced the peace, the peace accords, the, 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 new, the new peace, the new situation. And, and, but, but the political leaders kind of kidnapped the, the process, obsessed with uh, winning, still winning the world, the narrative of the, of the world. Uh, I, I particularly think that the, the FMLN won the war in El Salvador, I mean, the political one. I mean, they, they didn't make a, a, a revolutionary government, but they, they achieved a, a revolutionary changes. I mean, the democracy was a revolutionary change in El Salvador. The, the reform of, uh, of the um, security um, corps or, or, or the military, uh, that was big, but they didn't accept that. It was not enough for them, and, and, and Arena never accepted that. They tried to build a narrative of, of, of kind of surrendering the, 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 the family. And, and, and they, they never st uh, stepped down and, and let the new generations imagine a new future for the country. And, and uh, it's, it's crazy because they put a lot of effort uh, in, 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 in that. When FMLN arrived to, 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 uh, to, to the presidency in 2009, they were more, more obsessed with, 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 again, imposing and, and winning the, the, the narrative and, and winning the war that in, and, and protecting uh, or manipulating their, 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 the idea of legacy coming from the world that building a real government legacy. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I, I think that's part of the problem. I mean, I, the obstacle for the common future in, in El Salvador, and I think it's the same in Guatemala or in Nicaragua, was never the people going wounds, even if they, they are there still, some of them. Are, are, it was the cowardice of, of the leaders obsessed with um, protecting or, or still telling the story of the war and manipulating. Uh, I mean, we're talking at some point these days about, about the war for the truth. Mm -hmm. 
and, and I, I think they kind of became obsessed with that and never accepted that the war was a closed chapter. Thanks. Thanks. May I follow yeah. up just very quickly, please? I, I think we can't we can't ignore the role of like the the 800-pound gorilla in the room. I think we have to you know include a, a, some perspective here about about U.S. intervention in these countries, and and I, I don't think you can really discuss what's happened in these countries without mentioning you know that intervention, and I think that intervention is one of the things that, that kept, the, 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 you know, certainly in Nicaragua, it kept the, 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 the sides apart and kept the, them fighting. In El Salvador, for example, uh, you know, um, it was, I think it was the Archbishop, um, the Archbishop Romero who said, um, um, ellos, ellos ponen las armas y nosotros ponemos los muertos. You know, they, they provide the weapons and we provide the dead. And it, this went on after, after the Sandinistas took power after the, the, you know, the, the Contra War, and in, in, I don't know about El Salvador, but I think in, in Nicaragua today, there's, there's intervention from the United States still. And I think it, as opposed to you know, leading these countries in a, in a peaceful way, I mean, they don't have Harvard, they don't have Yale, they don't have 200 and some years of, of, of peaceful democracy, we do. And, and there's, there's something more that we should be contributing to these countries as opposed to just las armas, the weapons. Yeah, my thought. I, I, I totally agree that the U.S. and the international community kind of uh, contribute even after the war to that narrative. I mean, that idea of the left and the, and, and the right is still fighting for something. And it's not that, very totally productive, agree. is it? Yeah. It's not very productive, I think. No, it's not. I mean, the three countries are very different, though, in how they, how they went through this process. I would, I would argue that Salvador was, was different in the sense of taking a dictatorship as we saw from the photos and moving that in the direction of democracy. The military did sit out of politics after the war. Uh, there was a reconciliation on a certain level um, and the polarization seems to be worse than the other two countries in Guatemala and Nicaragua. Salvador a bit more um, nuanced, if you will. People kind of united now behind a, a new project, a populist project. but. Um, but, but I, I agree, I think the roots of a lot of this comes from a conflict. And this is the hardest part. <clears throat> what we work on a lot here at USIP is trying to figure out how do you go from whatever got them into it, whether it's a Cold War, outside intervention or whatever, how do you then transition to a peaceful future? And that's again what the exhibit is all about. And that's the hard work that I think if I was to <clears throat> criticize any part of US policy, I think we tend to look at elections as being the establishment of democracy and peace processes is the establishment of peace. Mm. And I think the thing we often miss is there is a very long process, sometimes decades of work still ahead. Again, I think that's what we've tried to capture there. And I appreciate the, <clears throat> these reflections again from all three countries, but in, in El Salvador as well, for the, the, uh, the trying to, to, to understand and come to terms. But I think also it's, it can't be helpful for young people to grow up devoid of an understanding of a war that was so brutal and was so was so decisive <clears throat> just 30 years ago, and then to try to erase that and, and move on. I wanted to ask um, Bob a quick question on procedure as well. You mentioned it a little bit, but the evolution of the US military in terms of how it deals with, with journalists. You mentioned a little bit, and then a little bit of the embassy. Did the embassy ever like, appreciate your work? Did, did they ever kind of try to, because you were going to places they couldn't go. Was that something they, they valued in any way? And, and the military seems, again, to have, made a, an evolution in how they have dealt with photojournalists. You've also worked, of course, in Afghanistan 
where it was uh, <clears throat> the embedding process kind of came, came about. Well, I kind of prefaced my answer before about Guatemala. And, um, but El Salvador had full-time military aid with advisors. And without the journalists pushing hard to get access to that, um, they tried to keep that away from us, as, as whether print or, or visual. And then when they finally relented, I, I feel that this was also a public relations maneuver to help with the process of military aid being approved, is to show who was actually out there uh, advising. And these are former uh, Vietnam veterans. Um, and the idea was not to show faces or names if we were given access. And if anything got published, um, it, it better be right. In other words, you had to work from behind an advisor out in the field who was training any of the Salvadoran soldiers. That, needless to say, I, I took pictures 360 degrees. And um, those pictures are now out there. But you could not inter interview the military. You had to go through the colonel at the head, head of the military group at the embassy. And that you didn't want to burn that bridge, whether you were there for a week or, or a year. You had to keep your communications open. You needed access. And that was our biggest uh, element to maintain, is access, whether it was to the civilian population, the guerrillas, or, or the military access and let the readers decide. Um, but I pursued, I learned how to pursue the military in El Salvador from anonymous to after 9-11 in Afghanistan where I basically moved to Bagram Air Base. And there were uh, press set up, tents, cots. We could stay there at the air base. We were given food, internet. Uh, and an occasional trip out into the countryside with the U.S. Uh, military. So they realized that it was better to have us, as, as I said before, maybe t informally on the inside of the tent looking out rather than on the outside of the tent looking in. I expressed it differently before. <laughs> but, um, and that was done in, I think, 2002, uh, mm -hmm. Tory Clark at the Pentagon uh, with a number of the media hounding her to let us come along, or we're going to go in on our own unilaterally into Iraq. So they realized that work with the press, take your hits, and if you're accurate as journalists, we'll deal with it. If you're inaccurate, well, you're, you're going to um, not pay the consequences, but we won't acknowledge you as often as those that people who do their homework. So. I, I've always kept good relations with the military public affairs people. I'm, I'm still in contact with them. Um, and they realize that we are in a different period than in the Cold War, where you keep everyone at arm's length, we're going to find a way in. And you're going to pay the price for that. Be responsible for what you put out, in my, my feeling. I'm responsible for the pictures that I generate. And I think we reached a midpoint in, in cohabitation of that uh, ground in the media where we're now in a 24-7 uh, media uh, 
production phase, and uh, you can try to win that and stay on top of things. But it, it, it's also kept me more aware of what's going on. I'm not in Ukraine, but I still feel I have a pretty good idea of the map in my head. Same thing with El Salvador or Guatemala. Uh, we maintain relations with the military for access. And they keep a record of uh, what we've done. Um, whether it was in Iraq, where I was always dealing with the lieutenant colonel for an embed, and um, they could check up on you. And they can still check up on me uh, if I apply formally. Mm -hmm. And it, it was, it's an interesting learning process. You have people who, who don't want to have anything to do with the embed, saying, well, that's, you know, it's going to change the way you view things. And I say, that's a challenge you have to face. You can reveal what it's like to be a soldier, and you don't have to carry the flag for them. You can remain a, as a, a good inquiring journalist, and that also is the challenge that I'm, I'm ready to deal with again. Mm -hmm. I, I find it fascinating. Thanks. Thanks. Well, let's go to questions, if we could, from the audience. We've got a few minutes. Ambassador McFarland? There's a microphone for you. How do you do? In, uh, there are actually uh, three former ambassadors to, to Guatemala here, and, and uh, veterans of, of El Salvador and Nicaragua as well. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you and congratulations on, on your, um, your statements and, on, and to you, Mr. Gentile, on your book. Um, I wanted to ask, in, in your work as journalists in covering combat, do you find that you go through certain phases in appreciating the true um, extent and um, effect of the, of the wars? And were there particular events that really crystallized your th thinking about these wars? Thanks. Bill, maybe first. Um, you know, when, you, when you're first starting to do this stuff, um, no one believes that, or at least I didn't believe that I could ever be hurt, you know, in, 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 in covering combat, covering war, covering conflict. Because you're young and you're pretty strong still, you know, and you try, you try to stay in shape and, and you, just, you just don't. It doesn't occur to you that, that you know, something bad can happen to you until you see what, what bullets really can do to human flesh and bone. And you get scared to your core a couple of times. That really it changes your perspective. Um, and that's, you know, after a while, um, you, you, you get more, I don't, I don't want to say more serious, but you get more cautious and you make more, you make you're inclined to make decisions with a lot more thought before you make that decision um, to suss out what can happen to you. Uh, and I think you become a better journalist. Uh, you, you know, you, and, and, you, and you, 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 you can show up for events like this one with you know, 10 fingers, uh, uh, two eyes, and, and two feet still. Um, otherwise, you know, a lot of people, a lot of our friends, and, and Bob knows this, and I'm sure Jose Luis understands this uh, as well, um, that's, 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 that's always the risk. 
there, and, and I have to point out, there, there's an extraordinary difference between um, the print journalists, I'm sorry, visual journalists like photographers and, and, and videographers. You know, we have to be, and this is, not, and this is nothing to, to criticize print journalists at all, but print journalists can do their jobs you know, over the phone, they can show up late for you know for a, 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 a battle. They can they can interview people after the fact and and still do their work, still do their job. We don't have that luxury. Uh, visual journalists don't have the luxury. We have to be there on time when things are happening, because once they're over, we can, there's nothing to make well. There are things to make pictures of, but but the essence is is not there anymore. You know, think about. Larry Burroughs's picture is called "Reaching Out." There's a there's a there's a, a, a an African American Marine, you know, covered with blood and trauma. Uh, he's reaching out to one of his colleagues who is you know, uh, laying, he's he's back he's got his back against the blown out stump of a tree. Um, you know, you have to be there to make that picture. Um, in combat, while things are happening. Uh, because not, there's no amount of words that can capture that, that emotion for you. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I hope that answers your question, kind of. Bob, anything to add? Um, well, I remember in the driver's ed class, we were taken to the dump. The car, where the broken down cars from car wrecks were... Um, displayed to us by the driver's ed teacher of people not wearing a seatbelt going through the windscreen. And these were awful uh, pictures that I learned to wear a seatbelt. And I still rolled a car. I still hit a tree. I did, you know, stupid things. And without that seatbelt, I, I would not be here. Now, in a lot of these conflicts, you learn from your mistakes or what other people do wrong. And very many have unfortunate results. I carried a very close colleague out of, after being machine gunned by the Salvadoran army across the street. It was clear who we were. An M60 machine gun was used to shoot at us. There were no guerrillas nearby. And the Newsweek photographer was right behind me and got down slow, and its 762 bullet severed his spine. I tucked my feet in as the bullets went right across. It was a purposeful target, targeting of us. Purposeful. And those were American bullets that they were using. Um, you learn from that, you learn, and I went to that position because I saw a radio man with an antenna. I figured if anyone knows what's going on, and the gorillas were coming down, they were dropping in mortars closer and closer. If anybody knew what was going on at that point, the radio man did. As soon as I got into the brush, he split. And he knew we were going to be targeted, is what I figured out. So. Am I cynical from these situations? Yes. Am I a better photographer? Yes. And I used to be a lot thinner. I just couldn't turn sideways and the bullets would miss me. <laughs> but there's always somebody in a group that you're working with who might take the lead and you figure, ah, that's a, go behind that wall. Don't go there. But in Bosnia, for instance, there were snipers with 50 caliber sniper rifles. 
try to figure out where they are, and all of a sudden a bullet hits here and makes a hole in the wall like that, it just missed you. Is that, that's luck? We, we use a lot of luck in, in this profession, but after a while I think you have to give it up and pull back. Still be carefully cautious, Bill mentioned that, about being cautious, but you also have to keep your wits about you all the time. And whether you're in the New York City subway, something can happen. You've seen um, events happen there too. I'm certainly aware of that now from my time in El Salvador and Afghanistan and in Iraq, particularly in Iraq. But it comes a time when <clears throat> I don't need to be figuring this out anymore. But uh, you learn by mistakes and of, uh, of others, unfortunately, but also yourself. We're going down the wrong road, and we saw that in the early part of Ukraine. The Fox TV crew went down the wrong road, and the Russians were there. I don't know how that happened, but um, I always managed to take good drivers with me and have good local contacts to, who had good instincts. So you have to use your instincts in these situations. Thanks. Can I? Other question? Sorry. Yeah, please. Something really brief. Yeah, yeah. One, just to, to state that what to, you, you just said is still happening, not only in Ukraine, but in Palestine. I mean, this is happening yet, still. Uh, one. And two, I, I think it's really important something you both say. You, you said, Bill, that uh, you, you the, the graphic journalist, you need to be there. Mm. And you, you talked uh, before about being uh, or working with proximity. And I think this is, this is really important because I think good journalists reflect on what distance means. And you, you guys uh, uh, break the, the, the debate or, or open it always, always the debate about distance. And I think it's the same with diplomacy. You know? I, I think good journalists reflect of, of what distance really means mm. uh, emotionally and physically you know, with, with uh, the subjects and what is happening on the ground. And I think it's very important. Thanks. Thanks. Other questions? Hi. Um, I'm Muriel Hasboon. I'm a photographer and in part from El Salvador. And I just want to thank um, everybody on the panel for, for your, your work, really, through this, all this time. And personally, Bob Nicholsberg, because this is the first time we're meeting in person, but um, when I was in my early 20s in 1984 in El Salvador, and I thought that I wanted to be a photographer, I talked to Bob Nicholsberg, who actually kind of gave me the lay of the land of what it meant to be a photojournalist. I did not become a photojournalist. I'm a fine art photographer, and I actually deal more with kind of like these counter stories, which, um, you know, about El Salvador not being only the visuals of violence. But I have a question also for Jose Luis. Um, you know, I, in my, I've, been, I've spent a lot of time thinking about El Salvador through my work as well, and like the effects of trauma and violence and how it is that we've seen. Um, and the history of El Salvador, and it seems to me that a lot of it is that El Salvador doesn't have a habit of confronting its own history 
and that you know for example amnesty the amnesty after you know the peace accords is like one of the i think major um consequences or or like effects of like the question that was raised initially about why is it that young people don't know about what happened and um maybe you can comment on that because i i just feel like you know um so much of it is that it's really hard for people to confront the reality of what happened and then have a dialogue and also a critical kind of response about it and so you know anyway just it's it's one of the things that i think is really important um through the work that we do through visual images and reporting and also any other kind of art and writing that you know can bring these kinds of stories to expand upon the stories that are very simple and and you know like really don't solve anything so thanks and then we're going to go to one question up here at the back after go ahead and and, and, yeah, answer, and then we'll have one teed up here at the back go ahead yes thanks. It's <laughs> a lot, Muriel. It's <laughs> a lot, but yeah. Well, again, I think uh, I think when, when when you say the people, we need to, to discuss. We are talking about who are, are we talking about? Because the people discuss about the world, as you know. No, I mean the, the people kind of processes the way they can find uh, the trauma and, and I mean. The thing is, democracy, I, I don't think, I, I think democracy is not only elections, it's not only um, fighting inequality, which should include that, but it's also understanding that the, the public debate must be, must, must be generated. And, and that's uh, the responsibility for, for all those who have power including journalists, academia. Uh, but we re reduce democracy only to several, some topics. And I think public debate, a debate about history, defines if we are or not a democracy. Mm. And in that sense, we are not. And, and never was put in the center of the discussion about democracy. Still, that doesn't happen in most of Central America. But I think it's, it's a huge difference between a democratic country and one that is not yet. And is that we need to discuss about our history because it's a, we have a right to do that. And those in power, including, again, academia, journalists, we have the responsibility to do that because from privilege, from the power we have. Thanks, we're a little bit over time. So if it could be a really quick question and a really quick answer. Hi there, good up. Hello. Hello, hi there, good afternoon. Um, my name is Vin Hui. I'm a student at Stanford here for the summer. Um, you're obviously in a, a time and place where people are extremely vulnerable. Um, I'm wondering if you can think of a time where you had uh, a subject, either an individual or a group, who was extremely skeptical of you, either perhaps as a journalist or maybe even as an American. Um, and what did you say or do that made them trust you enough that they would be willing to be a part of your work? Thanks, so this will be for Bill uh, quickly and then we'll wrap up. Thanks. 
I have the great good fortune of having worked in what I call the, the, the tail end of the golden era of journalism, when journalists like us, who were considered even by the most illiterate, untrained, unsophisticated, untraveled peasants in places like Central America, they believed that we were honest professionals trying to do our damnedest to get at the truth and to tell a proper story. Uh, so I never had, I, and, 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 and as an American, uh, uh, the people in Central America, it, incredibly, were willing to accept me as an American and make it, and, and, and understood that I was not a policymaker. I was a citizen of this country and not uh, not not responsible for its policies that, that they perhaps saw as as negative uh, toward their country. Does that answer your question? Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thank okay, you for we're, asking. We're getting the red light here. Well, I want to thank all of our participants for this really uh, unique event and all of you for taking the time to, to share this with us and those online. Uh, I want to pay tribute uh, to our three panelists for this, uh, the lifetime of courage and sacrifice that you've shown, and Jose Luis for a lifetime still ahead uh, for the most part, right? Uh, but the, the, the sacrifice to capture the images, to write the stories of conflict in struggling societies. Um, your work has made a difference. It allows for the processing of conflict from a place of reality, not romanticizing or political spin. And if you were, we are able to get that transition from imagining conflict to achieving peace, a crucial first step is in confronting the hard reality of conflict, and you've helped us to do that. So thank you very much, and thanks again to everyone. Uh, the Imagine exhibit is again here till Monday. If you haven't seen it, um, please do so either now or come back. Um, and I want to appreciate again all of, uh, all of the time that you've given us today. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.